Welcome back to Season 2 of That's So Second Millennium, the Catholic Science Podcast, where we look forward to the new synthesis in the new millennium between faith, philosophy, and science. Welcome to Episode 72 of That's So Second Millennium. This is our interview with Benjamin Rybicki. He is from Detroit. Unlike our previous interviewee, he has actually spent a good deal of his life in the Detroit area. He's from there. He did go to Johns Hopkins for graduate school for a while, but came back to Detroit and works at the Henry Ford Cancer Institute. So we talk a fair amount about his scientific specialty. He, at the conference, he discussed the role of genetics and inheritance in determining risk for prostate cancer and a variety of lung conditions. So we also talk a little bit about the responsibility that we have as Catholics to use our science, to use our vocation, whatever it is, to help other people, how that is one of the great callings of medicine. So with that, here is our interview with Benjamin Rybicki. Well, uh, in terms of my career background, uh, I've been here at Henry Ford since uh, 1991 for so quite some time. And before then, I uh, did a, a short stint in upstate New York, which was... Uh, Proceeded by my uh, graduate training at Johns Hopkins, where I uh, got my master's degree in epidemiology, and, and that's, I guess, where I first decided I wanted to be in the field of epidemiology and specifically uh, genetic epidemiology, and gained an interest in it. Even before then, I think I was always been interested in medicine and the practice of medicine, and uh, my career path took me toward, toward a research end, which is fine, and. Uh, I uh, went back once I started Henry Ford uh, to gain my PhD because I wanted to do my own research here. And it's worked out pretty well. Uh, I've uh, been able to pursue a research program in a number of different areas, most most recently uh, focusing on, on cancer and the genetics of cancer and prostate cancer and, and others, cancers and and. I, I can say in terms of my uh, my faith background, uh, that's always been a very important part of my life. I was raised cradle-catholic. Ca- ca- uh, I'm I'm from the Detroit area, actually. I, uh, I grew up here and uh, left for a couple of years to, to go to graduate school in Baltimore and, and lived for a couple of years in upstate New York, but moved back in 91. So, so you, went, you went to Johns Hopkins or... Yeah, I pursued my master's degree in epidemiology at Johns Hopkins, and then I uh, okay. finished my doctoral training at the University of Michigan. Okay, okay, there you go. Yeah, so you, uh, Ann Arbor, not that far away. Right, it's just about an hour drive. And actually, while I was uh, doing my doctorate degree, I was uh, in the process of uh, starting and raising a family, so uh was uh, a little bit of work. Uh, raising young children and, and finishing a doctorate degree, uh, doing a lot of work in the evenings and weekends to, to get it done. But, you know, it was a, a busy time in life in terms of starting to raise a family and uh, and try to finish my doctoral training so I could move my, my career forward. Uh, I actually had, uh, I was able to have, uh, well, no, that was, that was back in 96. And so it's been now 20 years ago, but I, I was able to have five of my six children come to, uh, my, uh, graduation ceremony when I got my PhD, which was kind of neat. I don't know if any of them really remember it at all, but. Right. But, uh, but they were there. They were there. Yeah. That's neat. That's really neat. So, but you've been at Henry Ford since, since the late nineties. 
person since the mid-90s. I have, and I've, yeah, and I've established a program uh, in, in prostate cancer genetics, and uh, it's really gone pretty well. And I, you know, in terms of uh, my Catholic faith and, and, and the research I do, I, I think they're very much intertwined into the idea, you know, the pursuit of knowledge and wanting to help people has always been at the forefront of what I've been thinking about and the work I'm doing and try to feel like I'm making a little difference in the field in terms of uh, bettering human health and the human condition. I, you know, I will say that it's uh, being a practicing Catholic and uh, or an academic field that you, you sometimes do feel a little bit like a fish out of water. Uh, and not to say that people don't have faith, but uh you don't see a lot of evidence of practicing faith, and and I, especially you know Catholic faith, and I and I can give examples of meetings I've gone to where you have you know, fifteen thousand people at a meeting, and they're often in large cities, and you know I would once in a while go for daily mass, and I would never see anybody else. Yeah. From the meeting at that mass, so. Yeah. You know, I did feel a little isolated that way. Yeah. Yeah, just a bit, and that's. That's that's been a common theme among all the people uh, that we've talked to is that, and it seems like it's even a little bit worse in biology. I mean, uh, it, it it can be, it can be, and uh, I'm not sure why. But for whatever reason, uh, the, a faith that you adhere to and uh, guiding principles, and that, you know, I think there's definitely a, a strong humanistic overtone for people in biology, and you know, I think most people are in it for the right reason, wanting to better the human condition. So. Mm-hmm. No, yeah. I, I definitely see that's there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There can be, I mean, just just in terms of of our discussions with other people, you know, Marine Condict brought up the, the the perspective that there are some people in in biology who have a very how did she put it? They wanted they wanted to take apart the toaster and then put it back together again, but they take a certain a certain pride in their accomplishments, and and sometimes God is almost a competitor. To their sense of accomplishment. Well, uh, you know, I think there has to be a, a, a strong degree of humility uh, in this field because no matter what we learn, there's, there's always something we don't know, and you know, we we have to admit that. You know, and and for the work that I do too, there's um most of the the work, well, almost all of it involves uh, studying the human person and, and often enrolling people in studies and asking. Uh, their time and, and sometimes you know there's a certain risk for them to participate in research and so we always have to be mindful of that yeah and respectful of, of, of individuals when they participate um you know the, at the very least just their confidentiality and knowing that the information they're providing us uh we have to hold in strict confidence and, and be very mindful of that medical risk or social risk or both well, you know, for instance, in a, a study of genetics, you know, you if you're uh, doing some type of uh, genetic work and you might come across a genetic variant that could mean that they have an increased health risk and, you know, making sure that in your consent forms that that risk uh, will not be communicated to their insurance company, for instance, that could um, injure them in a financial way. Just because they're participating in, in your study. Yeah, that's a tricky, tricky issue. So your your specialty is is prostate cancer, and you discussed in, in your talk at the conference you discussed the influences that certain genetic backgrounds can have on that. Um, I think you mentioned 
I guess you mentioned that African Americans are actually somewhat more at risk for prostate cancer than people of other uh, regions of descent. Yeah, and so one of the social or interesting aspects of uh, the whole idea of uh, race and increased risk is, it, as you you know, race is really a, a continuum. There is there's no there's no boundary we can draw with genetics to say uh, where one race starts, and one race begins. And um, but, but but that said, we know that people uh, of African descent, um, in part because of the genes they inherited from their African descent, um, they, there is a a different biology related to prostate and other types of cancers, and that biology can uh, in, result in uh, a different risk for them, and, in, and it also may result in other different treatments for them being more beneficial than others. And so it, it's important to study that because most of the research, uh, human research has been done historically has, has been in, in white males, and um, that the information we get from that has limited has limitations in terms of its uh, transferability to, to both women as well as uh, people of other ancestral backgrounds. And so that's where I, we feel it's important to understand how disease risk can change based on your ancestral background and, and hopefully gain some more insights into how we both can prevent it as well as treat it. Mm-hmm. Is that is that also true for people? Are there are there variations between people of Native American or East or South Asian descent as well? Oh, very much so. Um, you know, depending on the disease you're studying, and then and part of it may just be to do, or a lot of it may be uh, because of the where those genes uh, evolved in terms of the environmental pressures that were part of that evolution. Uh, you know, we know, for instance, uh, people that uh, from Africa. There's been a lot of pressure on their, their genome development in terms of uh, parasitic diseases. So, uh, you know, example with African Americans is that um, they tend to have a different inflammatory response to uh, pathogens than people of European descent, in, in large part because of probably the demand of it on their genome to uh, basically survive in an area where you have more potential infections. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Yeah. There's so many. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, so many things that can um, affect that. I mean, obviously living in, you know, especially for pre-modern peoples living in Northern climates, you know, with low sunlight and all of that presented a very different set of challenges that the, yeah, exactly. our bodies had to adapt to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So how did you come to, how did you come to prostate cancer? specifically as a as a region of interest was that something that arose in graduate school or no it was it was, it was more opportunistic you know I, I can say that my my main interest was in the field of epidemiology and just understanding human health with the tools that that um, discipline provided in terms of using human populations and um, I mean the, the thing that I've been very interested in or part of my interest is in numbers and statistics and so epidemiology is a field that relies heavy, heavily on, on that. And so the the prostate cancer was more of an opportunity because of the, uh, the patient population we have here at Henry Ford and the large amount of cases that come through. So, I mean, I, I think I'm mainly interested in just applying the, the tools that epidemiology has to understand disease conditions. And this is one that was where the opportunity arose to, to do some 
do some work in it. And Henry, yeah, Henry Ford, there's, uh, number one, we have a very diverse population. We have a large number of African-American patients that are here, and uh, we're one of the regional centers in terms of uh, getting cancer cases, so we had a lot of cases in general. And, and, the, and the work I do, it, it's reliant on large numbers as well. And the work I've done is also uh, taken advantage of other uh, diseases where we have a, a racial disparity. And I mean, some of the work I presented at the talk at the conference was another disease called sarcoidosis, which is yeah. probably not well known, uh, but it's a condition that it actually affects more younger adults than in older people. And um, it's an enigma in terms of both what causes it as well as what drives it in terms of a, a worse outcome, potentially in African-American patients. And so some of the earlier work I've done here at Henry Ford is, is focused on that disease as well and um, understanding the genetics, particularly in African-American populations. What does that disease specifically do? I remember being a little puzzled by that during the talk. Well, it, it's an inflammatory disorder, most often in the lungs, uh, and and it can present, it has a range uh, that it can present. It can present, it's just an incidental x-ray where you never knew you had it, but there's some you know, slight scarring or uh, inflammation in the lungs that... You have this, yeah. Yeah, versus uh, where you start having shortness of breath, uh, pain, uh, and find out that you have this progressive inflammatory disease, which... And in the worst case scenario, can actually lead to uh, need for lung transplant. So it, it's it's wide, widely variable in terms of how it presents and progresses, mm-hmm. which is which is difficult. And and the the other other difficulty, particularly people that have uh, worst case, is that um, the, the treatment of choice is often steroids, and have, being on steroids for a, a long period of time has its detrimental effects as well. So it sure does, yeah. That's another challenge in terms of trying to prevent the disease or find other ways to treat it. Right. Right. Yeah. And so then, then it doesn't have any, or at least any known sort of pathological, uh, you know, there's no bacteria or virus or something that triggers this condition. This is something well, it, that happens. Yeah. There's speculation and there's, um, you know, within more recent molecular technologies, uh, it's been the ability to look at the disease site and find remnants of, uh, DNA or RNA that uh, could be from a bacterium, but um, you know, it, it, in all likelihood, it's not probably one specific etiologic agent. There's probably several, yeah. uh, but uh, these courses is, is very highly variable, and um, it's typically a disease of exclusion. So where you look at uh, pathogens that uh, where you find similar diseases, that example is tuberculosis. If you know, it comes back negative for tuberculosis, but it has a characteristic chest x-ray, and sarcoid is probably the next disease diagnosis of choice. Yeah. It's not something that you would mistake for one of the dis- occupational diseases of silicosis or something like that. Uh, it could present very similar to that, and so it would require, again, if there's some suspicion of that occupational exposure, that's often the diagnosis that's assigned versus sarcoid. But disease presentation and even course can be similar. Yeah. The same, the same might be true of asbestos exposure, slightly different. 
situation. Right. But yeah. yeah, are there are in in terms of those occupational diseases where there's um, inhalation of of irritants? Is there likewise because of that difference in inflammatory response? Is there likewise a difference in how severe those can be for people of African descent as opposed to other people? Uh, yeah, I believe so. And I think probably one of the, the best uh, examples is uh, berliosis. Um, you know, that's a condition that has a very actually similar genetic uh, susceptibility pattern to sarcoid. Okay. Um, and and the, pre- the presentation is, is very uh, similar as well. Is that beryllium exposure? Beryllium exposure, exactly. And so the the challenge there is, that, you know, just to have uh, the necessary uh, number of people that have been exposed, you know, where you can actually do these uh, comparisons by race. And it's not a, that common of an exposure. So unlike sarco- sarcoidosis, mm-hmm. where you have a fair number of cases, um, it's not as easy to study the racial differences in berylliosis. There's just not as many, not, not that many people are exposed to toxic light metal. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I actually, that's that's one of those odd little points of contact where I've actually worked with beryllium bearing equipment simply because mm-hmm. it is it is that light, it's handy for x-ray equipment. Mm-hmm. Um, probably one of the main. I suppose it's worked into airplane alloys. Is there is there a manufacturing center near Detroit where that's been that's been used in quantity? You know, I I don't know of any beryllium exposures in Detroit. If anywhere, it may be in the auto industry. I I think the work that's been done is more in the western states. But I am one of those people who likes to listen to two people talking shop about something that I don't know anything about. Um, I don't know that everyone feels the same way about that. So <laughs> I suppose we'll see see what the response to this episode is. But that's uh, that's that's been fascinating to explore that. What do you see, you know, and, and it's been interesting to get a variety of perspectives uh, from different people, especially in the life sciences. Uh, what do you see as the significance for people of faith and, and Catholics in particular for for the pursuit of, of life science and medicine as you see it from your perspective? Well, the thing that struck me with uh, the conference, and, and I see that uh, moving forward, this is going to be a something that's important for uh, practicing Catholics to have a greater voice in is just the whole uh, understanding of the human person and the dignity of the human person made in the image of God. And, and as we move forward in the field of medicine and genetics and, and further dissect who we are, both on a, you know, a DNA level as just as well as thinking about uh, quantity and quality of life and what medicine could potentially provide in terms of extending life and, and the we have to, I think, always be mindful of you know, how we're respecting the human person and his or her dignity. Uh, the things that uh, concern me, you know, there was a talk in the conference about the CRISPR technology and the, the potential to just basically change the blueprint of a live DNA either before or after uh, conception and to be very careful with that and what we do and, and just you know, always be thinking about how we can improve the human condition uh, but not get carried away with what we consider an improvement and thinking things like intelligence or physical prowess are, are things that are important to, to manipulate. Um, so, it's, you, know, it's, it's, you know, I can definitely see that coming down the pipe, and it's, uh, it's a little scary sometimes to think about what all this technology can potentially provide that we're, we're kind of getting out of sight in terms of helping people live quality lies free of disease versus, you know, enhancing things that have nothing to do with their a disease condition at all. Yeah. Yeah. 
you know, that's and and all the uh, all the un, unpredicted consequences of things that we choose to change. Well, that's it too. When you know, for an example, might be you might uh, change a gene that would uh, lower your risk of heart disease, but it might increase your risk of cancer. And and so you know, we're not going to know that until we actually make that change and study it for a, a time, but. You have to be very careful sometimes about what you're, you're quote unquote fixing because um, there's a reason those, you know, over the course of thousands of millions of years, uh, the genes have developed the way they are. And while, while there's definitely uh, genetic mutations that um, clearly are pretend to a very serious and detrimental outcome that we'd like to intervene with, you know, an example like, for instance, cystic fibrosis, where you know, with that gene mutation, you know, until recently, you couldn't expect to live beyond age 30 and had a lot of high, yeah. high degree of morbidity associated with it. You know, yeah. And that seems like a no-brainer in terms of trying to do some intervention. But um, And there's other things that are, you know, high blood pressure or um, you know, tendency to be obese. You know, are, are these things that we want to intervene on? Are, yeah. You know, you can still live a very fulfilled life with, with either of these conditions. Yeah. Yeah, and there are lifestyle changes that can also be made to alleviate some of the the pressure from that. Yeah, exactly, and 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 that's you know the the other uh, analogy that can be made there is where we're going in terms of uh, being a medicated society, and where medicine I think it's getting too carried away with the idea of um, just treating it with a drug versus you know, some kind of behavioral intervention. Right, right. I mean, it's about seeing what we can get away with preferably with the help of something like a medication or some sort of external crutch or hack. We love that word hack these days. And with any, any, uh, you know, tinkering of the, of the human body, uh, whatever it is, you, you know, even aspirin, I mean, there's something, some intended effect and some unintended, unintended effects, you know, only, only know, you know, later on and it may be irreversible. Yeah. It's a dangerous, it's a dangerous game to play with ourselves. And it, I mean, it reminds me to some extent of, you know, the whole, as a colleague of mine once said, the better living through chemistry era of the mid 20th century, when we invented all of these wonderful things. And now we've spent, you know, my whole lifetime trying to clean them up from the, uh, from the seventies onward realizing, oh yeah, these chlorinated solvents, for example, these are actually, these are pretty bad. <laughs> we probably shouldn't be using them for these purposes. We probably should not be using them in anything like this quantity and we shouldn't be breathing them. Uh, yeah, but they, but they did the job so well and no one, no one thought about the side effects. Well, it's, you know, I, I hate to say it, but it, it gives, uh, uh, the opportunity for people in my field to, to do their work because you know, with right. every ch change in the environment or tweak, there's a new exposure that we can look at, uh, you know, you, you think about the earlier part of last century and all the terrible occupational exposures and what those resulted in. And, and so you know, the field of environmental health cleaned a lot of that up. But now we have, you know, the new exposures like the plastics or just all the medications we have and yeah. what those are resulting in in terms of health outcomes. So yeah. it's, a, it's a moving target. Yeah. We'll be keeping each other busy for quite some time. Uh, well... Were there any last words you wanted to uh, uh, leave the listeners with in terms of uh, either either your science or the broader perspective? Well, I guess I just uh, would like to encourage, particularly the uh, younger scientists uh, to, and those that are 
practicing their Catholic faith, uh, make it a, a strong part of the, the work they do and, and, and never let it fade into the background, make it a driving force. Uh, the, the last slide of my talk, I presented a slide on, on Dr. Jerome in June, who uh, most people know as the uh, discoverer of trisomy 21 or Down syndrome, and his faith was paramount to what everything he did and to the point of compromising his, his scientific career, but um, he, you know, he took the higher road in terms of understanding that uh, the discoveries he made, he was trying to do something good, and, and all the scientific practice or medical practice was veering in a, a direction that he he thought was wrong, and he, he made that statement that it was wrong, and yeah. and I think all, we all need to be wary of that when we think about our scientific discoveries and, and make sure they're used for the greater good. Yeah. Yeah, and to and to make whatever professional sacrifice is necessary, which that's a yeah. It's easy to say, it's hard to do, but um, I think we have to think about you know the the long run and not to our career five or ten years from now, but you know what we want to feel about our career, uh, you know, once we your uh, retirement and long after we're gone, because that that's more important than that uh, extra research grant or that uh, extra publication, right. For that extra accolade in particular. Sure. Yeah. 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 It's it's not meant to be easy. And but then again, if it was easy, if 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 holiness was that easy, uh, what would it be worth? I suppose. Very true. Well, we really uh, really appreciate you making the time. Your talk was definitely. I I think I thought with every one of the half hour talks, and definitely with yours, that. Uh, I was I was missing the other half an hour. Uh, I was <laughs> would really yeah, like like most of those half hour talks, you cram too much of it in. But um, hopefully, I was able to give the listeners a, a sense of the work I do and and how it may relate to under, understanding us ourselves better as human people. Yeah, yeah, it was it was remarkable. It was it was a really really high caliber gathering of people. I'm used to, you know, going to my own and I, I, I guess it's I can only imagine it's somewhat similar in, in biology or chemistry or whatnot, but uh geological conferences we try to cram in a bunch of people with uh you know, twelve minute talks and three minutes for question and answer and and just keep and just keep it moving. And I found myself you know, and I found myself again like these the, the half hour talks I was wishing was an hour, and the hour talks I was like, ah, let me let me settle in and actually get uh, get to hear what this person is trying to say. So, well, I think the whole conference is really well done, and I just you know all the speakers I thought were very strong and just engaging, and it definitely kept my interest. And you know, it's kind of neat hear hear about things that I don't know a lot about, and I, I think everybody had that experience given the diversity of the field that was there. So. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You mentioned you you were, you were talking about Father Ostriaco's talk where he's mentioning CRISPR, and of course there was marine context talk, and that was also fascinating, really fascinating. Yeah, and in fact, just this afternoon I was I was talking to Sonsolas de la Caya, and she was uh, she had a a talk that was very well received too. I was um, I was looking forward to it. I was almost kind of almost too exhausted by four p.m. to. Uh, <laughs> to get as much out of it as I had hoped. And of course I, I, I have a little bit of hearing deficit myself. So that made, that made it harder, but we had a really good conversation. So she's, uh, she's another, another wonderful person that would have been nice to have another half an hour, preferably about 10 AM with, with sufficient coffee to, uh, to get through the, but, uh, yeah. Okay. Well, well this, and hopefully by the time this episode airs, we will have all of the talks. They will all be available at the society's website for people, both, uh, members and non-members. So, 
So we'll. Well, I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to the next meeting. Um, it's my first meeting this past uh, last week and really got to meet a lot of real interesting people. And beyond, other than the talks, the time we just spent uh, at meals and the social time was really very engaging as well. Yeah, that was that's a great aspect of it is is letting uh, letting us realize we're not alone and to talk to one another and see and make connections. Yeah, it's a beautiful thing. Well, th uh, thanks again. Thank you. I guess we'll wrap it there. If you enjoyed this episode or it made you think, come on over to That's So Second Millennium's Facebook page and leave a comment or ask a question. We'd love to hear from you.